Hello and welcome to Biblical Breadcrumbs, the series where I break down a bit of the Bible to get you to look at it more. In this episode, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 9, the first part of it, first couple of stories, and starting into that. Now, last time we finished Matthew chapter 8, and we talked about the last two stories of it, really the wind and the waves, Jesus being on the boat, and then the disciples freak out about the storm that's happening, and Jesus wakes up and says, hey, why are you so fearful? Stop. Stop doing that. And he, he turns to the wind and says, hey, hey, stop doing that. And it just does. And he proves his power over nature in that instance. He gets to the other side of the sea. Remember, he was he was getting in a boat to get away from all of these crowds. He gets to the other side of the sea. There are two demon-possessed guys on the other side, super violent. They come and yell at him, and then they immediately start cowering in fear and trying to make excuses and trying to, you know, get out of being killed. And Jesus says a whole one word in the whole encounter. He sends them, the demons, off into the pigs. The pigs execute themselves. And now the people of the town come out and say, Hey, Jesus, we don't want you here. Don't, don't come here. Please, leave. And so that's the end of verse 34 of chapter 8. So, starting in chapter 9, he's going to get back in the boat and go on a return journey, basically. Go right back to where he came from. Short little trip over to the, to the east side of the sea, is what I'm assuming. And uh, he's going to go right back to where he is. So look at Matthew 9. Matthew 9 in verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he told the paralytic, Get up. Take your stretcher and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. So Jesus returns to where he came from, right? He goes back to his own town. Is that Nazareth? Is that, um, oh, didn't he? I think he moved to, ah, I forget where it is. Why did I not look this up beforehand? Um, yeah, in chapter 4, he went to live in Capernaum, in chapter 4, verse 13. So maybe he's back there. He's probably back there. That's what I'm assuming. So he comes back to his own town. And just then, apparently, there's some people who bring him someone who's paralyzed. Well, that's unfortunate, right? And, and that's an unfortunate condition that they're in. And so what's Jesus going to do about it? Because he's healed so many people. Right, He heals them of their problems, and he looks at this paralytic and he says, You know, I've got just, just the answer for you. I've got just what you need to be fixed. I'm going to remove your sin. There you go. I mean, sure, you're like still crippled and stuff, but, but you got no sins. Firstly, even though I'm being facetious about that a little bit, um, do you see the importance that Jesus places? Because it's way more important for this guy to be healed spiritually than it is for him to be healed physically. Right? Jesus is going to get around to the physical, sure, and I think he does know at this point he is going to get around to the physical. 
but that's not his emphasis. He wants people to know that he can forgive sins. That's kind of his entire point for coming, after all. That's his entire point for being here, is to offer people a forgiveness. And so, hey, your sins are forgiven. That's important, and that's the most important thing. Now, looking at this, there are some people that are not very happy about this. So some of these scribes start talking, right? People who are experts in the law, basically. Some of these guys start talking, and they have a brilliant idea, a brilliant claim, which, okay, I should probably not be facetious about that either. It's kind of fair, right? This guy is blaspheming. And so they say this among themselves, or they say this to themselves. Um, that's kind of like their thought process as a group, and that's what they're muttering about in a corner. Now, what's the connection with with Jesus saying what he said and these scribes calling him a blasphemer? What's, what's that connection, and why do those two things go together? Well, only God can forgive sins. Only God is capable of removing someone's sin, and so when he says, hey, your sins are forgiven, you know, Jesus is kind of claiming to be God, and that's a problem. That is blasphemy. Right, claiming to be something you're not, and, and and claiming to speak for God when you don't, and saying these evil things against Him, you know that's that is blasphemy. So I can understand where they're coming from. At the same time, Jesus is God, so it's not blasphemy; it's truth. And and maybe I mean benefit of the doubt, sure. Maybe the scribes don't actually know. And are just hearing Jesus for the first time and saying, oh, like, that's that's problematic. You can't say that. Maybe so. But uh, do you think they know who Jesus is? Do you think they've seen anything that Jesus has done at this point? And so they should know who Jesus is. They have seen miracles happen they have probably heard his teaching at this point although he gets more into the debates starting now and so maybe this is legitimately the jumping off point i don't i'm not sure about that one um they should know who this guy is if not before now they should know it now because of what he's saying and he says look what 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 are you thinking about why are you blaming this on me Think about what what I said. This guy's paralyzed, okay? Is it If I wanted to get away with something, if I wanted to do something, do you think I would just say your sins are forgiven? Because these people would believe me. These people are pretty impressed at what I've been doing. These crowds have been following me for a while. If I say that, they'd probably believe it. So I could, I could just say that and leave it at that, and you'd never know. But so that you will know, right? Here's your proof. Here's your proof that I have, what is it? Look at verse six, that I have authority, the son of man, um, the person in Daniel seven, who's been given this kingdom, right? So that you'll know that I have authority. Paralytic, get up and walk home, which by the way, doesn't happen. And so naturally the paralytic gets up and walks home. I don't know if you guys know what goes on with being paralyzed. I'm not sure all of the details, but I'm pretty sure you can't walk. And so naturally, this guy just gets up and walks. 
when the crowds saw this in verse 8. Look what happens. They are awestruck, right? They are amazed and wondering. They gave glory to God, which is good of them and good, finally. Um, that's the right reaction to have, which, by the way, who is God? Well, Jesus is God, too. <laughs> So I don't know if they were, they might have been worshiping Jesus. They might have been uh, praising God himself. I'm not sure, um, but they gave glory to God. That's the right reaction. Who had done what? God who had given such authority to men. We've been talking about authority from Jesus for this whole book. That's what Matthew starts out with in his genealogy, or in Jesus's genealogy, rather, that's what Matthew starts out with, and that's what Matthew emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Matthew is emphasized in chapter 8 and chapter 9 as well. So look at this. Look at what Matthew's doing here, right? I think this is really cool. Starting from chapter 8 and verse 1, Jesus runs across a, a guy who's a leper, right? The worst physical disease there is, and he cleanses it. He then proves he has authority over distance and can heal the centurion's servant. He proves he has authority over the quality of healing and just instantly puts Peter's mother-in-law back to perfectly good health so that she's able to get right up from a fever and be serving him. Um, that just doesn't normally happen, and yet Jesus does it. He then heals a lot of people all at once. He then proves his authority over humanity. And, and in chapter 8, verse 18 through 22, he proves his authority over humanity. He has a right to command them to not follow or, or to follow them. Um, it is humanity's prerogative to pick up on that and to actually do it. So that's, that's the difference there. Jesus isn't going to command humans that they must follow him. He's just going to tell them that they should. But you get back to the nature part in, in chapter 8, verse 23, and Jesus has authority over nature. You get to the demons, Jesus has authority over demons and the servants of Satan. He has authority over human nature and restoring it to what it should be. And now you get to chapter 9, and Jesus says, have you seen, rather Matthew says, have you seen all of the buildup that I've gotten to? Have you seen everything that I've been emphasizing here? So in chapter 9, Jesus now has authority not just over, not just in chapter 8 where he had authority over leprosy, the worst physical disease, no. He has authority over sin, the worst spiritual disease. He has authority over Satan, not just, not just the forces of Satan, those demons that he just got rid of. No, he has authority over Satan himself. He can remove that. That's what he's showing through the paralytic, that Jesus has authority to take away sins. You know, that's pretty important. That's pretty important to just Christianity as a whole. And that's what Matthew is emphasizing. Now, we're not done with that. Because look where Matthew goes next. Matthew chapter 9, in verse 9. And Jesus, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you see Matthew's application of verse 8? Really, of, of verse 6, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What does he do after that? Jesus proves that he can forgive sins, that he can that he has the authority, that he has the power to command that. And immediately after that, he goes and finds a tax collector named Matthew, the guy who allegedly wrote the very book that we're reading. Tax collectors are not well thought of. Tax collectors are traitors to the Jewish people. They have defected from from the Jews and gone to the Roman side. They are agents of the oppressors, right? And so tax collectors are not well thought of. And Matthew uses this story to frame how impressive it is. Jesus can heal sins, but but not just sins, right? Jesus can heal even the worst types of sins. I don't know how Matthew felt when he wrote this or what it meant to him. But I'm sure it was very impactful for him. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Right? Not only not only can he forgive sins, whatever those sins of the paralytic were, Jesus never specifies. Not only can he forgive sins, he can forgive some bad sins as he proves by taking in Matthew but not just that right it's not just forgiving the uh, and forgive the term but the quality of the sin right right he had control over the quality of healing Peter's mother he has that kind of control here he can heal all of of any type of sin perfectly and now he can also forgive the quantity of the sin because look at who he's meeting with he's meeting with tax collectors and he's meeting with sinners. This is the first time in the book that this is happening, by the way. Matthew is not going to say Jesus is meeting with these people before he's proven that Jesus has the authority to help them and the ability to help them. No, Jesus, Jesus has now proven that he can remove sins. He removes Matthews, and now he's talking to tax collectors and sinners. What do you think he's trying to do? And how do you think he's trying to help them? Now, the Pharisees don't like that very much because, you know, the law is kind of uh, don't associate with those types. Stay away from those kinds of people. You're impure. You're unclean if you if you deal with them. <coughs> so don't do that. Why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he willingly associate with these people? And Jesus hears that. And you know what he says to them? You know, here, here's an illustration. You're a doctor. And you have sick people around you. So that means you're a failure as a doctor, right? Because the doctor's job is to make people well. And if everybody around you 
is not 100% well all of the time, obviously the doctor's failed at his job and should be fired. Yeah? We know that's not how that works, because a doctor's job is to fix the people who have the issues. Jesus is the same way. Is he around people who are spiritually perfect and, and don't need any help whatsoever? Well, no. He, he came to help those people. He came to heal those people. He came to remove their sin from them. And you can't do that by acting aloof. I mean, sure, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look bad if you just kept yourself— um, you wouldn't have a bad record if you were a doctor. If you looked at a patient and said, oh, you're a little bit sick, I'm not going to take you in. Well, I mean, nobody that you ever took in would have been sick. And so you can claim a perfect track record there, but what does it mean? Jesus could have done that. He could have came and he, he could have come uh, and, sorry, my English failed there for a second. He could have come and associated with only perfect people, which means basically, well, nobody, but he could have associated with only perfect people and then kept a perfect spotless record of like, yeah, everybody I associated with was perfect. Well, you didn't associate with anybody. Yeah, uh, but they were perfect. You, you didn't heal anybody, yeah, but nobody died at, at my clinic. Well, that doesn't mean anything because you're not doing the work. The Pharisees aren't supposed to just keep themselves aloof from everybody else. They're not supposed to keep themselves away from the people who have sinned and the people who need help. They're supposed to help them. They are the religious leaders. What do they think they're doing? when they keep religion from the people who need it the most. So go learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I want the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's from Hosea 6. Right? Jesus is going to quote this at least twice. I ran across another instance of it in Matthew chapter 12, where he's speaking to the Pharisees, go and read the Bible. Right, This is what God said. I want people to have mercy and not just sacrifice, right? Do sacrifices come with mercy? Yes, they do. Do the burnt offerings come with the knowledge of God? Yes, they do. But if you put the sacrifices and you put the burnt offerings and you put like all of the perfect deeds before any of the faith, what did you actually accomplish there? Don't put the cart before the horse, Pharisees. Don't get ahead of yourselves. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want knowledge, not just offerings. The offerings will come, but the knowledge is more important, right? You can have all the right actions. If you have the wrong heart, you still failed. That's back to the message of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like Matthew wrote a logical book that builds on itself. So that's where we'll leave off in the beginning of chapter 9. Next time we'll pick up from there um, talk a little bit about John's disciples and why they just kind of show up randomly in the middle of this chapter. Hopefully that is helpful to you. I, I hope that it was. I love how this book is constructed. I don't know if you can tell. I love how this book is constructed. And so I'm really glad to be able to talk about it and hopefully show you something new or remind you of something that you knew before. So thanks for listening. I hope it's been helpful, and I'll see you on the next episode of Biblical Breadcrumbs.